if I'm honest, for the two years and the education at BSU was awesome, but for the two years, I learned the most about business by doing River Nerd. And as good as class is, there's no substitute for the real thing. Like you said, Jim, just go out, just do something. You're going to learn a lot more than in this safe space of a classroom. I'm Jim Huffman, and this is If I Was Starting Today, a collection of conversations about half-baked startup ideas, growth tactics, and stories from founders, including my own journey as a business owner. All of the content is centered around one question. What would you do if you were starting today? Today, I talked to Billy Bateman, the CEO of Chat Funnels. It's a fun discussion where we talk about how when he was getting his MBA, he actually launched this side project that actually got him some serious traction. And while it became a failure because the government shut it down, it got him on the radar of one investor that led to his current company, Chat Funnels. It started as an agency and has grown to a, a pretty significant SaaS company. We break it down into how we chose this category and came up with this idea, how he knew he had product market fit, and then the number one lever he uses for growth that's helped them double revenue over the past two years. And then finally, he gives one half-baked idea that he would launch if he was starting today. So I really hope you enjoy this episode. It's pretty tactical, but for anybody that's starting anything in software, I think you're going to get some good takeaways from it. So again, would love to know your feedback from this episode. I'm on Twitter at Jim W. Huffman, but I hope you enjoy it. All right, Billy, glad to have you here. Would you introduce yourself? Yeah, yeah. I'm Billy Bateman, co-founder of Chat Funnels, and we're here in Provo, Utah. The SaaS company transitioned from originally like a consulting agency type model into SaaS and love working with chatbots and account-based engagement. What did you start doing and how did you eventually get to this path? So I grew up mostly in Idaho around the Boise area, just this little town outside of Boise moved there. I didn't even know it existed. My parents were moving to Cuna. And I'm where is that? And it was mostly farmers when we moved out there. And now it's just tons of houses. And then went to BYU and studied actually real estate at BYU and worked in commercial real estate for a few years. But while I was going to BYU, I worked for a company called InsideSales.com. They're now called Zant and worked on their marketing team, running pay-per-click ads, doing SEO, some events, and and really enjoyed that, but but ended up, I, I also love real estate as well as software. So went into real estate for a few years and uh, then decided to go and do an MBA and, and get back into, into more technology. And while I was in my MBA, I also, you're doing all the MBA classes. I went back home to Boise State, love Boise, love Boise State, and they have a an entrepreneurship program called the Venture College. And and I was like, okay, that's actually more what I want to do than just go be an executive and run finance or operations. Probably just want to start my own business if I'm being honest with myself. And part of that program is you've got to come with a business idea. You got to pitch it to 12 other entrepreneurs from the area that are on their board and they've got to give you the thumbs up or the thumbs down. So the idea I came with was I grew up uh, in Idaho and I would guide whitewater in the summers and loved it. So we would guide whitewater kayaks, whitewater rafting. I've worked on both the salmon and the snake rivers. And there are some really coveted permits for the salmon river in particular. You have to put in for a lottery to get them. And your choices are pay about like $5,000 a person to take this trip with, a, with an outfitter or put in for the lottery 
draw it yourself and spend as much or as little money as you want. And the odds of drawing those permits are awful. I've been putting in since I was 17. I'm in my 30s now. I've never drawn any of them. <laughs> um, and so what, what we did was actually it was inspired by one of my friends who he put together like a spreadsheet one year and he was here are kind of the odds, I think, for each day. And there were certain days like the day after the 4th of July, nobody wanted to put on the river. Actually, the 4th of July was ended up pre being pretty high. And by high, I mean, you had a one and a half percent chance of drawing. So we started out with a blog and just published these these stats and essentially like a guide, how do you get your river permits? And the river community is pretty small, but it got a lot of attention within that community. But I wasn't making any money at it to, to start off with. And from talking to people that I knew were looking at the site and had looked at my stuff, they're what I would really pay for is not the guide because we all know the odds suck. But if you could tell me when a cancellation is available, because after, if you draw a permit, if you just no-show, they don't let you put in for, I believe it's five years wow. afterwards. So, you know, but if you cancel, you can put in the next year. You got to just let them know, okay, for whatever reason, I can't make this trip. And then the way the Forest Service was doing it was they just randomly put it up, whether it was middle of the day, whenever. And the first person to say, yeah, I want this trip, got it. Wow. So went on, used Upwork actually, paid a guy to write a little script that would monitor the pages and uh, just send an email or, and a text message to anybody I put on the list that whenever a cancellation came up and uh, was making some money doing that, it was going really good. And then the Forest Service, they didn't love the idea I was making money doing it. I, I get it, but they changed their whole system within a month and I was shocked. I was <laughs> like, I can't believe the government did anything that's not like a pandemic quickly. Right. So they changed that. And essentially, they'd made it much more equitable. Honestly, I feel like the system they put in place is a lot more fair than what it used to be. But I was out of business at that <laughs> point. And there's all kinds of details about, hey, we were trying to get a hold of them and work with them and, and nobody would talk to us. But I learned a lot. And then that was my first year of the MBA, finished the second year. When I got done, I had some job offers, nothing like I loved. And Dave Elkington that I used to work for at Inside Sales came to me and he was like, I saw what you did with River Nerd. I'd actually asked for a lot of his advice while doing that. And he's like, I'm interested in investing in a few areas, but we're going to start with the more of a service model than a SaaS model to get going. And chatbots and account engagement on the website was one of those areas that I, I took some time, researched, and I said, well, we can do this. And with that, we started just started chat funnels off as more of an agency. And now, now our real focus is on selling our own software solution. That's cool. So I want to go back to river nerds. Cause there's something interesting there. You saw you, you went after a market that there's cl a clear problem and there's clear demand and you're just adding value. And then the other smart thing is you're listening to customers, to readers, and you're actually hearing what they want. Hey, this content's great. But what I really want is how do you get me these deals to actually get these permits, right? And so how did you monetize that? Are you taking a cut of it or are people paying you just to get on a list? So what I did was just a subscription. So I think it was a hundred bucks for the year. And there were a couple different rivers that, that they got with that. And, and yeah, so it was just, you go to the website, pay your $100, we would ask, how do you want to be notified? Cell phone, text, email, whatever it was you could choose. 
you got set up, you got on the list. And then if you got your permit and wanted to go off the list, you get off the list. But yeah, it was just an annual subscription is what we were doing. That's like, what were you charging people? I think about a hundred bucks is what I charged people. hundred bucks for the year. Nice. And how quickly do you spin this up in the MBA program? Is this within like weeks, months? Yeah. So it probably was about two to three months from like inception to taking a customer payment. I don't remember the exact timeline, but started in January and by April we were we were live with the with the whole subscription model. In January we just had the blog, started talking to people, and then yeah, by April I was taking money. Yeah. So I mean obviously like the MBA program, you get to learn some things, but Personally, I learn best by doing as opposed to reading or listening and, and getting that rep in that quick of a time frame is huge. What does that do for your mindset? Even though you launch something, you get success, you make money, and then amazingly, the government swoops in and is very fast and agile, and then they put you out of business. But I got to think you, you have to be feeling confidence. Shoot, I mean, I just did all of that in under six months. What can I do next? What's your mindset after you have that? Because yeah. the one thing I want to get at is so many people, they see founders doing cool things. They don't know about all the other half-baked crappy ideas or side projects they did that maybe got traction or didn't. But like, w- yeah, what's that do for your mindset? Oh yeah, it was, dude, it was awesome. And I actually was getting married right after all of this happened. So I, I was down when they changed everything. I was like, <laughs> flip, man. So I had these visions of like, oh, this is not a million dollar idea. But at the time I'm like, hey, I can pay all of my expenses for Chelsea and me for the next year, perhaps with this while I'm finishing school and I don't have to work at this 40 hours a week. But uh, yeah, it, it was pretty disappointing when it all came to an end. But I think probably about 30 days after I realized, man, River Nerds, I was looked at everything I did and I was like, that was amazing. And I learned a ton. If I'm honest, for the two years and the education at BSU was awesome. But for the two years, I learned the most about business by doing River Nerd. And as good as class is, there's no substitute for the real thing. Like you said, Jim, just go out, just do something. You're going to learn a lot more than in this safe space of a classroom. Yeah, I I agree. I was going down a path of finance. I was studying to get my MBA. I remember I was taking the last course before I was going to do my GMAT. And I was like, I can't do it. I'm about to spend six figures on an (laughs) MBA for two years. I'd rather go burn that money trying to start something. But again, I think there's a lot of pros to an MBA. But for the way I learned, and I wasn't going to get in a big program, I was like, "It, it doesn't make sense for me. But it's it's cool to hear your main takeaway was that, but that class set you up to do that. So you can make the argument that it worked. I'm glad I did the MBA, but that was outside of even the MBA courses. Most of the other students in there with me were undergrads. I think I was the only graduate. No, there was one other graduate student in there with me in our cohort. And most of them, they're 18, 19, 20 years old, just like finishing up an undergrad, whether it was in business or even like there was one girl, I think was an art major and had had a business she was working on, learned a ton. I started a few others, tried to start a few other things during that second year of the MBA, and none of them found any traction. I'm working on these little side hustles because I didn't have a ton of money at the time. And if I hadn't got some type of scholarship, I definitely wouldn't have done the MBA myself. I did the applications. I'm okay, well, I'm not going to Harvard or Stanford or something like that where it's worth doing the debt. But by going home to BSU, I'm like, dude, I can come out of this debt free, which is, which is what I want to do. 
And it sounds like doing River Nerds, that was a resume to get on the radar of, I guess, your partner with Chat Funnels. That's like, hey, I, I saw how scrappy you were. I saw you. I was watching you from the sidelines. How do I partner with you? So, so talk to me. I'd like to approach Chat Funnels from this framework of, because I'm looking at it from a growth perspective, coming up with the idea, getting traction to see that it's real, and then getting to growth. So kind of talk about the origin story of why this is a worthy idea or market that you should jump into. Yeah. So I, let me just talk about the framework. And, and this is something my partner taught me, Dave Elkington, with Chat Funnels. So what, we, what he was looking for is he's like, hey, there are a few different areas, one of them being the chatbot space that had a lot of traction. And this was in 2018. Drift was just starting to take off. Intercom has been around forever, but people were starting to use it more for the sales and marketing, where it had traditionally just been, I live in your product as a support thing. And then there were a few other players. Can you dumb it down for people? When you say chatbot, what, what should people think? What's the use case for a chatbot? What does that mean? Yeah, yeah. The use, the use case we were after is not an AI chatbot where where everyone's, I can answer all of your questions. We're talking about a very simple chatbot to help people do a few things. One, chat with the sales team on the website. That's the most basic of all of them. Second is just find what they need on the website. So basic navigation. Third, which I think was is was the most valuable and when we started was qualify people to book meetings directly with a sales team. Now it's expanded in the years that we've got going beyond that, but that's like at its base, what the bots um, essentially are doing. We looked at, at areas that had raised a lot of venture capital money in the last few years, it, and at least a hundred million between the whole space. And the venture capitalists are no dummies. They know where to put their money and, and make bets on the future. And then we decided let's not start with with software. It's expensive to build software. Once we started hiring developers, I'm like, man, my payroll just went up crazy. But start as a consulting agency. So, and we were very niche. What we do, and we still do this, is we we work with companies using our own product, using Drift, using Intercom, using other uh, chatbot or conversational marketing uh, tools and helped them effectively use the products. So with SaaS, we know churn is, is a very real thing. And the reason is you don't really get adoption. That's why people churn, unless you've got a bad product. And most products are not bad. It's just getting people to fully adopt and use it. So we worked with companies inside sales.com, Avanti, Pantheon, Archive360, or a few of our customers to help them use, use tools, and everyone had a little different goal, but the big goal was more pipeline for their sales team with all of these. And we developed a methodology for testing chatbots. It was our first big breakthrough. Like, what are the factors and the different levers you can pull within building a bot to make it more effective? And what are the things within each of those? So you can start with the CTA. That's the very beginning. If people don't engage with the bot, it doesn't matter what else is there. So we would start by testing CTAs and figure it out. Okay, here are the different types of CTAs, put them into categories, then start it like on booking a demo for a SaaS company. How many questions should you have in your qualification process? What should those questions be? And a lot of these answers yourself, you're the marketer or the sales team that's doing this, but it's just the subtleties within it that really make a difference. Also, what's the order of those questions? That's a big one we found, that the order of questions 
has a huge impact on how many demos you get set and how qualified those demos are. So we would do that. We dig in, bring everything together from their CRM, from their marketing automation platform, the chat tools, and give them some real analytics and insights into what's paying the bills and, and what isn't so you can quit doing those things. That's so smart. So it's, I think everyone wants to jump into SaaS, do something really scalable, but by starting with the agency first, you're able to actually have those relationships with the user to see the use case, see what's, what works. You actually build up your own kind of customer intelligence. And then how does that inform you actually building the product? Because obviously you're saying you're using other tools, but then you build your own. Yeah. So we have our own product for the, about the past year. And what it was able to do is we could see, okay, here are the features that, that work and provide real value and the features that don't as you're building products. So we all take, and it's always a gamble every time you build a feature. I mean, it's best if you have a customer. If you build this feature, I will pay you more money. But that's not always the case. So we could see, okay, these are the features that provide real value and customers from working with them. And here are the things that like, they just don't matter. So we didn't have to, we could get much we get to a, a product that was useful and viable a lot quicker by, by just skipping the steps of trial and error that other people have gone through. The other thing is it helps us see what's missing is the next thing. What is missing from these products that, that we can add and we can do and be unique? Because if it's just like, hey, we have a more effective tool, but it's essentially the same tool, the only thing you have to negotiate your value is price at that point. So it's like, hey, we're cheaper than so-and-so. That's why you should go with us. And that will win you deals. But why not be, hey, we are unique. We're different. We're better. We create value in a different way and create more value than our competitors. Yeah, trying to get that true point of differentiation. And I think a lot of people get nervous with that because they want to be everything to everybody. They don't want to say no to business. But man, I, I know the phrase everyone says about the riches are in the niches is so true. The idea makes sense. There's this trend happening of conversational marketing, of customer services marketing, making a more personalized experience on the website. That's what chat does. Talk to me about when you start to see this traction where you're like, holy crap, we are on to something, whether it's on the agency side or the software side. When did it make sense where you're like, it's time to really go all in on this and really invest? Yeah. So on the agency side, as we were getting going, it took about six months to uh, where first six months were largely just myself doing the work. I hired our first employee about four months after we started. She was part-time student helping me out with things. And then two months after that, started getting more customers. We just didn't, we didn't hire ahead on that side as we'd sell. We're like, okay, we need one more person to support this deal. Sold a few more deals, hired another person. And it took about a year before that agency side of things was, was going really well and was self-sustaining. It was always profitable on its own. That was one of our rules we put in place on the services side of things. It's got to pay for itself from start to finish. But we started building software after about a year as well. So we hired our first developer at that point, started building. Is the agency funding the developers or are you getting outside capital to do that? Yeah, the agency was funding the developers at first. Now we decided to go in a little. We decided, hey, let's, let's just really go in and brought in some outside capital to do that. But initially, the agency funded everything. And then it took about, 
we started building product. It took seven or eight months before we were at a point where we could really start start giving people product, getting it in customers' hands and, and seeing what they said, what they wanted. And actually, COVID was kind of the turning point for us where we started getting a lot more traction for two reasons. I think our product was at a place where it, it was just more mature and people could see the value and really, really use it for a lot of different things. And then everybody <laughs> went home and we weren't going out and going to trade shows or everything. So people had to focus on how do we get the most value out of our website? Because people have had for a little while. It's kind of all cases still the way people are doing business until we really come out of this. Yeah, that's a huge opportunity for you all. So you're getting trash with the agency. It's profitable. Can you talk about what is the whatever numbers you can give? What's the size of the company or how you guys are doing right now? Yeah, so we're about 18 employees right now, and we're doing really well. We've been growing. We grew over 100% year over year, and and things are things are picking up. We've been hiring more sales reps over the last couple months, and we're loving it. What we one of the things that it really it takes a while to get to p- true product market fit, and we believe we're finally there. So we started out just to talk about our differentiators from our competitors. Testing was one thing that we started on the agency side, and we brought that right into the product. So from every one of our customers has the ability to test their chat bots, their live chat, see what works, what doesn't. We help them out with that. And the next thing we noticed in consulting was it's very contact focused the way most of these are built. It's focused on Jim comes to our website. What does Jim do? But you may have three other people in your decision-making process from your company that are also doing things, but nobody's like tying that all together and giving the sales rep or the marketing team insight to say, Jim came, but we've got two unknown visitors from Growth Hit. And then we've got Sarah also came and this is what they did and scoring that and helping giving them the insights into what they should be doing. So we have an account-based engagement feature set that really helps you tie everything together, know who's on your site, and then engage them really intelligently using live chat, using email, and and using the chat box. So, because that's such a good point. There's a lot of cool software out there, so you have to choose where you compete. What's that point of differentiation? It's like taking your insights from being an agency, knowing that people want to test, integrating it to the the full tech stack of marketing. I think is huge. And so. You, you get this traction, you're, you're on this cusp of product market fit, and you hit it. So I have two questions. How do you know you have product market fit? And then two, what have been the best levers for growth for you as you are going double growth, doubling growth every year? Yeah, so I mean, this may, I don't know how, what people think about this, but when you have like your sales guys that are brand new, and just not that good at pitching the product, <laughs> can do a demo with somebody and they're like, yes, I want this. Like you're onto something at that point. So for me, that was kind of like, oh, we've got this. When I'm seeing, you know, brand new sales guys just trying to figure it out and they're closing deals right off the bat. To me, that's okay. You got real fit because if you don't have fit, you need great salespeople that can just get things done. And for levers for growth, This is one thing I don't think people are doing enough of that I love. We started doing virtual events last year, and we don't do them where it's just like, come learn about chat funnels. We really try to focus on the industry and helping people across the industry learn, 
share ideas. Let's bring as many thought leaders together, smart people, whether they're from big, small companies. If you've got a great idea to share on whatever topic we're doing an event on, we want to hear from you. And doing those has been great for us just from a lead gen. We, we drive thousands of leads out of each of our events and, and it's been great. And then we get our name out there because we're still pretty new. We're less than three years old and people, they may have heard of us, they may not have, but we get in front of a ton of people. So every quarter we do a big event and that's been our best just lever to pull now that we've got a product, something that we feel is great to get people interested, get them in the door and help get them on the on team chat funnels. Yeah. I mean, especially during COVID, that sounds like the right strategy. Cause as I look at B2B companies and it's like, what's your main driver of growth? It's either paid acquisition, it's partnerships. You could do content marketing. You all have been especially good at this virtual event and call it partnerships. What advice would you give to a B2B SaaS company that's trying to go in on virtual events and do it the right way? How do you make sure that's a success? So first I would say, just do something. Don't worry about it being perfect. Cause our first one, it came out well, but up until it started, I was like, man, this is going to be a disaster. <laughs> and we had our hiccups. We definitely had our hiccups, but just get something and do it well and set your goals high for whatever you want to do on that virtual event. And you're probably going to miss them the first time, even the second time. But if you just stay true to those goals, we wanted to get 30 speakers for our first one. And we wanted 5,000 people to attend. Did not get 30 speakers. We got somewhere between 20 and 30. We crossed 1,000, but I think we got just under 2,000 at our first one. And really just be very inclusive. Like, be with speakers. Dude, whatever they need to do. You've spoken at our events. Ask them what makes it worth it to them. Be collaborative. And, and leverage your network too. That's what we do with ours is the first two, it was pretty much like if I had a relationship, if Dave had a relationship, somebody else, the company did, we were reaching out and asking them to do us a solid for the first one. On the last event we did, I was looking through the speaker list and I only personally know five or six of these people. <laughs> so just start doing it and really make it something that gives value to people. Don't make it too salesy for yourself. Just give people real value. And I think that's where we've found a great niche with our virtual events is they're more focused on the industry and topics within the industry and sharing. We don't have our speakers give like a pitch for why you should use my product. And if they do, we usually just cut those right out. And we're just like, man, we told you. Don't give us the demo. Share real tactics and strategies that they're using themselves, whether they use their own product or services or not. So. Yeah. No, I think you all did a very good job of that. Even when I was doing one, I like posted about it on my LinkedIn, like, hey, I'm doing the chat funnels event. And I think 10 people in your team responded and shared it. And I was really impressed with how active your team was. And it was a really nice group. But the other good takeaway is people are hesitant to do that first one because you're like, oh, this is going to suck. I haven't done this before. I'm not good. But it's like, one, just do it. And I like the idea of setting lofty goals because even if you miss them, you're still going to be within a ballpark of it being okay. Those are some good takeaways. Yeah. If you do something and you're like, well, we only want 100 or 200 people to come, dude, you're not going to even get 100 or 200 people to come. Let's just be honest. We all set big goals and sometimes we hit them, but most of the time we don't quite get there. <laughs> And were you able to leverage the audience of a lot of the speakers to build up the list? Was that one of the main drivers of getting to 2000? 
Yeah, we ask all of our speakers to help promote, and they all do a great job of, of promoting, whether it's social, email, even just within their own networks, sending sending personalized invitations. If you're doing a virtual event, one one hack that I'll I'll share with everyone I, that we've found is the LinkedIn events are a great way to get awareness out because you can send out personalized invites if you're an attendee at a LinkedIn event. So if I'm attending, I can invite most of my network and just say that I think is it's applicable to and and they get that direct right in their inbox in LinkedIn. Oh, that's smart. Yeah. So leverage the audience of the speakers, leverage LinkedIn events. Any other tactics or hacks that we should be thinking about? Leverage your network, for sure. The more speakers you can get, the better. At a virtual event has been my experience. And just get it done. If, you have, if you've got real questions, I'm happy to talk to anybody. So just give me a call and, uh, or message me on LinkedIn and, and let's chat about it. I'm happy to, to share a little bit of what we do. Yeah, that's awesome. So I, I want to talk about SaaS because you you guys have some insane things going on with growth. And when it comes to selling software products, subscription products online, one of the big questions is around, okay, do I do free demos? Do I do a free trial, a free version? How do you do pricing? Talk about the evolution of that and what you guys maybe started doing and what you've evolved to today. Yeah, so we, we're believers in the free trial. We started out more on the demo side of things, and we'll get you in and get you signed up, and, and you can do that. I'm a big believer in the free trial. Let people experience it. Let them see what's going on. We have our team reach out as soon as somebody signs up and offer them a personalized strategy session. They can learn how can I use the product and what's going to be best for me. We believe in having everybody here be a product expert. We put everyone on the team, whether you're customer support, sales, an engineer, through something we call bot school. And that's your first month that you're here. You're going to be spending two to three hours doing that. And so what we saw is that demo was not good at converting. People did not want to sign up for the demo when they came to the site. We took it down from a 30-minute to a 15-minute demo, and that did a little better, but they all ended up running 30 or 45 minutes anyway because you honestly didn't have enough time to learn about them and, and do a short demo in 15 minutes. But once we switched over to the free trial, and we're still trying to figure out the best way to do this free trial, it's my number one right now is what do we have in the free trial? What's that experience? How do we get it to be really dialed in so it's easy for somebody to come in, start using chat funnels within 15 minutes, and then seeing value within 24 to 48 hours? I think you should be all in on a free trial if you have a SaaS product. I think it's the easiest way to get somebody in. We've thought about freemium. I've never tried it, but it's very interesting to me. It's some type of freemium model as well. Yeah. I mean, the thing that's nice about the free trial is it can be your acquisition strategy. And one thing with any product, you want to get them to that magic moment as quickly as possible. We're like, wow, I get the value of this. So they want to buy it. But no, I totally agree. Because from a marketing perspective, the product, can, if it sells itself, use that. Very nice, man. I want to hit on kind of shift gears. You've from river nerds to chat funnels, you're good at understanding what people want, what customers want. You've you've clearly jumped on this the trend at the right time with, with chat. If you were starting today, what are some half-baked startup ideas you have or even industries you'd be excited to go after? Yeah. So I do have this half-baked idea that I'll share because I don't think I'm ever going <laughs> to get it done. 
I'm an outdoorsman. If you haven't got that, one of my passions is really, I love, I love hunting um, and fishing. And with COVID, we've seen an explosion, like it's turkey season here in Utah. I was actually out this morning trying to film my tag, unsuccessful again, but there are so many more people out hunting and fishing than there were two years ago. Last year, we went out camping almost every weekend during the summer, my wife and I, and so many more people. And that's not new for us. That's usually what we do is we go camping in the summer, we're going fishing, and then in the fall and the spring, I'm going to do some some hunting. Getting into that hunting and fishing space, making it more accessible to people that haven't been in there is something that I think I think is ripe. If you can help people do that, I don't know how much money's in that. I'm sure it's not as much as like a SaaS company, but there's going to be a lot of money because I've got people that work for me. It's like, I want to start hunting. How do I get into it? And okay, it's actually not as easy. It's not that easy because of you've got to get a license. You've got to go through classes and they don't want you out there shooting everything under the sun. It's a public good, but whether that's through a website that make, explains, okay, in every state, here's what you've got to do to get a hunting license and here are the basic rules and, and guides them through getting started. That's something that's more of a passion project than I'm going to make a ton of money, but I think it'd be good because I want more people out there, even though it's more competition. I think it's good for people to be connected to the land, especially if you're going hunting, you've got to eat what you kill. And it is so much more rewarding. I'll pull out, you know, some steaks and I'm like, yeah, this is deer. We went out, we harvested it, we butchered it up and and we're eating it. It's a, it's a lot more personal and fulfilling than, hey, we went to the store and you know, we bought some steaks at, at Albertsons. <laughs> yeah. You've definitely earned your meal when you do that. I think it's very interesting. And also I equated a little bit to golf and that it's not a, a cheap hobby. So if people are getting into it, they probably have decent, high disposable income. So they're not as price sensitive to do something that could accelerate their learning, accelerate how quickly they get better at it. And so whether it's a content site, some sort of a concierge service, I think there's a lot of opportunities there. Yeah. And I, I do agree. It's one of those things that's probably going to only explode more and more. There's going to be something that pops up in the space that you'll have major FOMO for that you didn't think of. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's one site it's called gohunt.com, which I love, but it's more for the guy who's already, I'm super into it. I'm super hardcore. I think there's a, there's a space to get in there at the, Hey, let's help people just get into it. And you're right. It can be, it can be cheap, but once you get into it, it gets expensive real quick. (laughs) (laughs) My wife, after we got married, she's like, how much money do you spend on this stuff? I'm more than you thought. It's like, well, you're you're already committed. You already have the ring. Sorry. Yeah. I know because I'm, I'm getting into golf and my wife, you paid how much for that? I'm like, I know, I know, but it's an investment. So I had to choose between golf and hunting and, and hunting one out for me, <laughs> but I love golf. I still love golf. I played basketball growing up and I loved it. But as I get older, I'm going to tear my Achilles and my ACL. I need a sport that won't put me on crutches for months, but no, that, that's a really good idea. And again, I love the niche ideas that are on this upward trajectory. Okay. So my last question I have for you. What is the nicest thing anyone has done for you in your professional career? I think it's not just one thing, but when people do this, it's great. Actually give you honest feedback on what you're doing well and what you're not doing well. My first job out of college, I never got feedback. I worked there a year to the day exactly. 
never got one piece of feedback on how it was doing. My next job, they gave me feedback all the time and I loved it and I got better. But like that first year I was learning stuff on my own or I, nobody was giving me any direction, but giving people real feedback and then opportunities. So when Dave was like, Hey, let's start this business, dude, that was an amazing opportunity to work with Dave. He's a successful entrepreneur, you know, can't thank him enough for that. But he also gives a ton of feedback. And anytime I've worked with somebody, even somebody that works for me, and they're like, hey, I, I really like when you do this. I'm not so sure about this, or I see this as a strength. I, I appreciate it. And I think, it's, I think it's one of the best things we can do for each other is like help each other get better. Agreed. I mean, constructive criticism is necessary if you're going to progress and get better. It doesn't have to be a bad thing, especially if you have a good relationship with people. It'll be delivered, even if it's stuff that's hard to hear. They know that the general thought around it is is positive. But no, man, that, that's a that's a really good call out. I, I totally agree. Yeah, it's you got to have that feedback. Most people want other people to be successful, so you got to be in a place where you can take it, but uh, <laughs> be open to feedback. Yeah, it, it's taken a little while, but I, I can usually take it now. Very cool, man. Well, where can people? find more, find out more about you or chat funnels, where should they go? Yeah. So to find out more about chat funnels, just go to chatfunnels.com and that's the best place to get some information. If you want to uh, get in touch with me, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. So just send me a LinkedIn message. Happy to connect, happy to answer any questions. Cool. Awesome. Well, Billy, thank you for the time today. Awesome. Thank you, Jim. Today's episode is brought to you by no one. Yep, we have zero sponsors. I haven't reached out to any companies, nor would I expect a reputable brand to give me money. But I'll give a few plugs. First, I send a weekly newsletter each Thursday featuring five articles or tools that have helped me. You can sign up for these weekly updates at jimwhuffman.com. Second, for anyone running a startup, if you need help growing your business, check out Growth Hit. Growth Hit serves as your external growth team. After working with over 100 startups and generating a quarter billion in sales for clients, GrowthIt has perfected a growth process that's hell-bent on driving ROI through rapid experiments. Plus, you'll get to work with yours truly. So if you want to work with a team that's worked with startups that have been funded by Andreessen Horowitz or featured on Shark Tank, then check out GrowthHit.com. And finally, I wrote a book called The Growth Marketer's Playbook that takes everything I've learned as a growth mentor for venture-backed startups, and I've distilled it down to 140 pages. So instead of hiring a growth team, save yourself some money, get the book, and you can just do it yourself. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I'd love to hear feedback. I'm on Twitter at Jim W. Huffman.